0: All your favorite CBC Podcasts are now available on YouTube. The best in award-winning true
1: crime investigations, hilarious comedies, vibrant pop culture conversations, and even more audio series are all available on CBC Podcasts' YouTube channel. You'll also find exclusive video first episodes, YouTube shorts, and behind-the-scenes content from our hosts and producers that you can't find anywhere else. So if YouTube is your go-to source for podcasts, just search CBC Podcasts and hit subscribe, and you'll never miss the latest update.
0: This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. So, it's Christmas, or it's the holidays at least. And everywhere you go, the drugstore, the pet shop, the shady drugstore that sells pets, you're probably hearing this song. Oh, I
1: don't want a This
0: is I'm for. That's Mariah Carey, and All I Want for Christmas is You. Matt Rogers hopes more and more around the holidays you're hearing this.
1: Have you heard of Christmas? It's when Moses did the lake. Have you heard of Christmas? That was the night that they made Saint Nick a saint. Have you heard?
0: Of uh, we here at the CBC have not fact checked any of the facts in that song. That's a bit of the song "Have You Heard of Christmas?" from Matt's debut album of the same name. Let me explain. Matt Rogers is an actor and a podcaster. He's one half of the hugely successful podcast Las Culturistas, which he co-hosts with longtime friend, the Canadian cast member of Saturday Night Live, Bowen Yang. A few years back, Matt saw an interview with Mariah Carey, and I'll let him explain the moment because it's really great. But there was this moment that he saw an opportunity to do a Christmas special that was a little bit more modern, a little funnier and a little bit more honest about the reason a lot of artists actually make Christmas music. So Matt and I had a conversation over Zoom to talk about all of this, but also about being a young kid in Long Island, closeted, and the prom king, loving comedy so much, realizing there wasn't a place for him in it, and how that changed. So Matt's really funny. Matt's a great chat. He also thinks very deeply about art and which systems allow which people to make it. But we start off with Mariah. Here's my conversation with Matt Rogers. My, my understanding is this whole obsession with Christmas kind of happened because you saw an interview with Mariah Carey talking about Christmas. Is this right?
1: Well, I think the obsession with Christmas started from childhood because Christmas is sort of inescapable, especially in the Roman Catholic house that I was raised in. And I grew up on Long Island. So, you know, it was like sort of an inescapable culture. But the idea for the project that was Have You Heard of Christmas was. I was watching an interview with Mariah Carey, sort of as I'm wont to do. I am a "Died in the Wool" lamb, card-carrying member of the Lamely. Is, the that what, is that what is that what the fans
0: Mariah Carey fans are called? Lambs?
1: We we are the lambs. We are the Lamely. We are the family of lambs. Okay,
0: yes. this is good. So, hold on, what are the other ones like? Swifties.
1: There's the. Swifties, which I'm also a card-carrying member of that. There's the Arianators, which are the Ariana fans. There's the Selenators, which are the Selena Gomez fans. N-
0: monsters, which are um,
1: <laughs> little monsters.
0: Little little monsters, right? Which are Nicki Minaj fans?
1: No, the, come on, those are those are Lady Gaga, Gaga fans. fans. Lady Gaga fans, man. I'm no, on the like, Nicki, the what, Nicki what Minaj What are Nicki Minaj fans? fans. The Barb's. The Barb's.
0: They're the Barb's. The Barbies. And uh, I don't know, uh, public radio fans. Oat milks. I didn't know if you knew that. They, yeah, yeah, they're called oat milks. Yeah, I don't know if you knew that.
1: You know, you 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 kind of know you made it when you have that. Yeah. So uh, actually, Bowen and I have our own fan community. The Lost Recess listeners are called the Readers. Oh. And they've they've recently started going by the Katie's because so many of their names are Katie. <laughs> But just to answer your question, (laughs) um, yeah, I was watching an interview with Mariah Carey probably in like 2016, which is really like, it was sort of like, Mariah was always coming back and taking a bite out of Christmas every year. But then in like 2014, 2015, 2016, it felt like it sort of did get this like insane third wave. where she really amped up and sort of became aware of her own monster, as it were. Um, But I think the interviewer sort of said the quiet part out loud. She was like, you know, Mariah, like your content is, of course, like your Christmas content is so iconic every year. And you really did something smart there. You make money off of it every year. And I kind of thought it was so funny that they said the quiet part out loud right there with the capitalism of it all. So I said, oh, you know, it would be hilarious as if I out of nowhere just said, hey, come to the duplex in the West Village. I'm doing my Christmas album. It's for sure real. It's definitely coming out. Come. And my boyfriend at the time, who's still my musical director to this day, despite him not being my boyfriend anymore, um, Henry and I wrote an entirely original Christmas show that we called an album. You know, the show poster was designed as a vinyl record. It was actually designed by Bowen Yang. Famous graphic designer Bowen Yang, of course, yeah,
0: <laughs> and, noted <laughs> noted Canadian vinyl record designer and Yang, yeah,
1: a hundred percent, you know, and um and uh, so I did the show, and it was enough of a hit locally that it was uh, justified to do every year, and so then all of a sudden, like with the success of the podcast, and you know, me just developing as a comedian, um, I started to tour it. I finally did it as a special last year on Showtime, and then the record deal followed shortly after that. You know, it's been kind of. Um, pretty fruitful for me just like mariah so suddenly i'm like wow i guess i'm participating and satirizing this capitalist machine that is christmas (laughs) and now a spoken word moment where are you christmas why can't i find you
0: well, I I'm glad you mentioned that. And I have I have a couple of things I want to say about that. So so one is you're absolutely right. Like I feel like especially I come from the music world, like I come from touring in mm-hmm. bands and, and playing and touring and all that kind of thing. And there was always like out of nowhere these friends of mine who are in these touring bands when all of a sudden around November announced that they've always cared passionately about Christmas and they've, they have right. they even wrote their first original Christmas song. And of course they would sell yeah. like a kajillion of them because everyone just kind of wants to buy some – not to be cynical here, but everyone kind of wants wow. to buy something for the holidays. So I, I understand what you mean by that. It's It's sort of a turn to capitalize on Christmas.
1: Well, that's uh, why I always say my project both celebrates and drags Christmas because it's very aware of the fact that, like, you know, these pop stars and musicians, what have you can't all possibly have this passion for this holiday what they have a passion for is money and the fact that you know i think the record labels are the ones being like hey by the way you love christmas (laughs) um so so that they can go out and like participate in this like really foolproof you know what i mean industry which is the christmas music industry and you know so it's But by the same token, like it is such a warm and cuddly and friendly and fun time of year. So what I think has helped my project is I do get to sort of like stand by the comedy and that we are sort of taking the piss out of the fact that like we all participate in this like very, very, very about the bottom line culture, which is Christmas, but also like... There are the wonderful parts of it, like the the great characters and the togetherness and the, you know, the imbibing like there's There's so much in it. And so it just is an entire landscape to be explored musically and comedically, which I love. And, you know, it's it doesn't take itself too seriously, at least on my record. I, I can't speak for Josh Groban. I probably could. <laughs> you know, what? you can
0: try but- and speak for Josh Groban. Uh, yeah, I just
1: lowered my voice.
0: <laughs> his his fans Grobanators. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, Grobanators. Yeah, Grobanators.
1: Groban- yeah, I love that. That's good for him. Um, uh, have you met Mariah? I have met Mariah in passing. So this is one of the funniest. So I, I don't know how this keeps happening, but I keep sort of like running into these icons i've always loved like i met jennifer hudson recently i've met kelly clarkson a few times i've been on her show she's been on our podcast which was so huge and probably the big boss of all the women i've adored in my life is mariah carey and last year i was with Bowen. we were guests we were guesting on cody rigsby's peloton talk show it was called LOL Cody, and so basically, um, this was in the midst of Mariah doing her like big, you know, endorsement with Peloton. I think that was the the big engine of last year, and she, so she um, was doing a bit on that episode. So she sort of comes out in like what had to be six thousand inch heels, does like a bit on a pedestal with Cody, and I'm literally on the bike in the Peloton class you know, like pedaling next to her. And I realized that they had put me there because they knew I was such a huge fan. And I guess hopefully to catch me on camera, like mouth agape, staring at the legend herself. And she turns to me when she's done with her comedic bit that she was doing. And she goes, can you help me down? Like she mouths the words, can you help me down? So I nearly tear my ICL, wrenching myself out of that Peloton bike. <laughs> I run over in the Peloton shoes and like help her down to safety. I got to touch her hand wow. and be responsible for her, um, you know, click, click, clacking over to safety. So we have met. I don't know that she would remember it, but it's sort of like the way I would want to meet Mariah Carey. You know what I mean? And like a passing puff of Christmas smoke.
0: You didn't get to tell her, hey, you mean a lot to me or hey, I, I, I did this whole thing based on you.
1: I did not um, and you know I would imagine that her team is pretty careful about what they tell her like there's a song on my album called Hottest Female Up in Whoville which is uh, um, written from the perspective of Martha May Houvier from The Grinch in the style of a Mariah Carey song
0: we hold on, we, we have that song can we just like a listen to it just take a listen to this
1: sure listen oh, 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 oh. Got this jacuzzi running. That
0: is uh, Matt Rogers and his song called Hottest Female Up in Whoville. Hottest
1: Female Up in Whoville, baby. So
0: you were saying, So, where did that song come from?
1: So basically, here's the mythology behind that song. So I'm watching The Grinch one day. It's one of my favorite Christmas movies. Jim Carrey is so great in it. And, you know, of course, the character I'm most interested in as a gay man is Martha May Houvier, played by Christine Baranski.
0: I've never seen so many beautiful Christmas lights, Betty Lou. Well, i would blow every fuse if I tried to keep up with you, Martha May. Isn't
1: this And what I think is so funny about that movie is that it has a great soundtrack. Mariah wrote an original Christmas song for the film called Where Are You Christmas? Where are
0: you Christmas? Why can not I
1: find you? It's it's sung from the perspective of Cindy Lou Who. And I'm thinking to myself, like, if I'm Mariah Carey and I'm watching this movie, I'm identifying with Martha May Juvier. Like, where is the Mariah song in the from the perspective of Martha May? Because Martha May, you know, she's the only single adult woman in Whoville. She's scantily clad. She's very Mariah. And so I, you know, sort of got to typing, which is always dangerous, Tom. Um, and I, like, wrote up a you know, Mariah Carey song that told the story of Martha May Houvier, And it resulted in Hottest Female Up in Whoville. And it tackles themes of feminism. It tackles tackles themes of isolation and loneliness from the other women in Whoville. It really sort of delves into the perspective of what it must be like to be the only single woman in Whoville who, who's also, you know, a certain type of girl. And um, I think Mariah would be proud or feel very ripped off. <laughs>
0: so, so, yeah, the, the question is, is that um, has Mariah heard it? You're saying her people have probably tried to keep it from her.
1: You know what? I actually think they shouldn't because I think she'd appreciate it. And I think that if there's anything Mariah loves, it's a lamb. And I am one of them. Like, I, I and I think that you can't listen to that song and not know that I'm someone that has religiously studied Mariah Carey. I mean, like, I'm pretty proud of my vocal on it. You know, I'm not saying I'm hitting whistle tone notes, but like. I, I think I got into the character of the way that she sings, and if anyone would know how to mimic her, it's me. Trust me, I'm 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 religious about this stuff.
0: So so for people who are listening to this who don't know what Matt's referring to, there whistle tone notes are, is the register that Mariah Carey. Very few people can hit, but like Mariah Carey is able to access this other register, like above what we would call like falsetto, which is this sort of whistle tone. You'll hear it at the end of like Heartbreaker. Where she does the, yeah. ah, I can't, I mean, I can't do it at all.
1: So I guess the the most famous instance of her whistle tone and the range of her whistle tone is probably her song, Emotions.
0: How's your whistle tone?
1: Uh, today, not great. I, I, it's not great today, Tom. I, I, I can't try it today. <laughs> check, check with me another day. Have me, have me back on the show. Let me, I haven't drank my tea.
0: How did you decide what you wanted to write about on this record?
1: <laughs> you know, um, I think it's just, if I have an idea and it makes me laugh, I know to, I know to continue with it. I, I, um, I have a, I, 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 I think I had some success with this idea of exploring the female character that was Martha Mayjuvier. So the second year I did the show, I did that again with Mrs. Claus and I just thought, what's her reality? You know, what's it like to be the woman who um, is behind the man? You know, we all know Santa, but we don't know the story of Mrs. Claus, like what's her reality? And so I wrote sort of like this um, you know, breakup revenge ballad of Mrs. Claus finally getting a calculator and doing the math and realizing there's no way that Santa can visit every house in the world on Christmas Eve when he leaves. So where does he go (laughs) when he leaves? And that song is called Every Christmas Eve Mrs. Claus's Theme. You've been bad I know that when you and your reindeer boys gear up that you'll look back You'll say it's 24 hours, I'll see you later But I did the math I bet you thought that I would not be capable of that But I bought a calculator and it would take $530 trillion.
0: My My guest is is Matt Rogers, comedian, writer, and podcaster. His debut album is called Have You Heard of Christmas? And it's out now. He's performing in Toronto at the Danforth Music Hall on, on December 13th. Um, I was I was doing some research before I, I came in to talk to you. And I, I'm obviously familiar through your podcast, uh, Las Culturistas. But um, I found this interview, and I wanted to ask you about it. You said that... Um, growing up, you knew comedy was something that you liked, but you knew that it kind of wasn't for you, that there wasn't really a place for for you in it. Can you talk to me a little mm-hmm. bit about that and how you find a, a place in it?
1: Yeah, totally. I I think it was a really interesting time for queer kids when I was younger and realizing I was queer, because the world was sort of Hinting at acceptance, but certainly not accepting. So I like vividly realized I was gay at age 11. And my um, I have like a very specific memory of that realization. And the emotion that came along with it was fear, because um, at the time, I think one of the biggest pop stars in the world. And I do call him a pop star because that's really what he was. I mean, he was being played on FM radio was Eminem. And he was very, 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 um, let's just say vocal vocal in his homophobia, or I think what he would call the character that he was playing was very homophobic. You know what I mean? And even when characters were depicted as gay on screen, they were sort of not to be taken seriously or a very specific type of palatable Um, i.e. they seemed very straight. You know what I mean? Like if there was Will and Jack on Will and Grace, there was one who was to be taken seriously because you would never know he was gay. And then there was one who was like a joke. If he got hit by a car in an episode, it would have been in line with the comedy. You know what I mean? So what comedians riff on are the attitudes of the day. And the attitude of the day was homophobia. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about that. And to say nothing of stand-up where pretty much like, you know, it was just not a place where you saw gay comedians. And so when I say you don't really know you can be it if you don't see it, Mm. there just wasn't a future for me in that. I knew I was pretty good at making people laugh. I knew I had a good sense of humor. I knew I enjoyed comedy. When I really started to develop uh, my sense of humor. I found myself really gravitating more towards Margaret Cho, mm. Kathy Griffin, mm. Sandra Bernhard, um, and the female cast members of Saturday Night Live and Mad TV. To be quite honest with you, um, in terms of comedic voice, Tina Fey was huge for me. Just like I think many gay men of my age would say, Amy Poehler, Maya Rudolph, you know, Anna Gasteyer, people of that ilk. Um, and so, by the time I got to college. I think that because I was at NYU and because Obama had been elected, there sort of was a change in the attitudes. I sort of could see myself fitting into comedy a little bit more just because I could feel attitudes changing just around gay people in general.
0: When you say fitting into comedy, do you mean fitting into comedy, like um, finding more things to watch and listen to that you felt um, felt like you, or you found like a community or you found other like opportunities to do comedy that felt a little bit more like you?
1: I think both. So basically um, when I was in high school, it was still very much the same. I think that, you know, gay create, I mean, comedy creators and content makers of that time and comedians would probably cop to the fact that they wouldn't do a lot of the content that they did, you know, um, regarding gays, regarding women, regarding, uh, minorities, like trans people, everything. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly trans people. Um, that's really only changed within the last three or four years to be quite honest with you. But, um, but I think that what happened was is I went to NYU and I became part of the sketch comedy group and, um, it started to just like comedy just started to reflect the values of the world a little bit more. And as it felt like the, people around me were more progressive, that comedy became more progressive.
0: I mean, when you do, now that you've done the podcast with Bowen, when you look at your, I know that like early days, finding out that you guys had a live show that had an audience was like, oh wow, there's a, there's a, I heard people ask you, when was the moment that you knew the podcast was working? I've heard you point to that live show as an example. Oh, look, I knew that people were coming out. But now that you're telling me your story, I I think I understand it in another context, which is also like, oh, there's a lot of people who, hey, I felt isolated in my own comedy taste for so long. Oh, there's a lot of people in seats right now who have the same comedy taste that I do. That's, that's meaningful.
1: Well, I think what says everything is when Bowen and I started that podcast, we really did not think anyone would listen to it. Like we were just doing it for ourselves. And then when it became this thing, uh, which I have to tell you was the last thing I think would be quote unquote the thing. Um, it made me realize like, oh, actually, my voice is a valid comedic voice. And now, to be honest with you, it's something that I think I rely on as a crutch sometimes. Like, sometimes I'm like, it's weird, like, once like I used to be the kind of person who like really worked hard to create characters. You know what I mean? Like I used to like be a sketch comedy person. Like I was like a real writer and I would create so many people that weren't myself to play. Now when I realized like, oh, my comedic voice is valid, which I just literally, Tom, did not know and did not think was real. Now I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like that's a lot less work for me. Like I can actually just oh, yeah. filter my own observations and my own sensibilities into my comedy. And that works now in a way that I just never thought it would. Of course, I'm grateful for my education and ultimately grateful for my adversity that I went through. And I think every one of my peers would say the same thing. But it's really fascinating when you realize that like kind of the world was wrong all the time. Like I, I, I always had something to say and I always had contributions. I really just didn't see it reflected back and therefore I didn't believe it. And so if if I think, I think if there's one thing that I'm really proud of, it's the fact that we could be a part of that change in a visible way, because I know that that means a lot to people just to hear people who may not exactly look or sound like them, but who at least don't look and sound like everyone else.
0: That's the first part of my conversation with comedian Matt Rogers. We've been talking about his album, Have You Heard of Christmas? More of my conversation with comedian Matt Rogers coming up. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank.
1: Jesse Cruikshank.
0: I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend.
1: Girl. I was very cruel to myself. I definitely went through a depression. I, I would say I'm really, you know, not to say too much, but like, of course it affects a friendship. You know what I mean? Like, of course it does.
0: I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the comedian and podcaster Matt Rogers, who's most famously known for being one half of the big hit podcast, Last Culturistas, which he hosts with Saturday Night Live cast member and Canadian Bowen Yang. So let's talk about that. In the first part of our conversation, Matt and I were talking about him finding his voice in comedy, You know how the podcast made him realize that the stuff inside of him that he thought was funny was, was worthy of an audience. We talked about his Christmas album and his Christmas special. But yeah, let's, let's talk about this part of the, the interview. So Matt and Bowen host this podcast together, and they've been partners in comedy for a long time. And when something blows up, um, this often happens. Matt and Bowen were asked to audition for Saturday Night Live the job that will change your life in comedy. Matt was pretty sure they were both going to get it. And then only Bowen gets the job and Matt doesn't. That's where our conversation picks up. And I'm really grateful to Matt um, for his honesty in this part of the conversation. I learned a lot. Take a listen. So my my understanding of it is that you and Bowen are doing the podcast. Everything's going really well. Um, You're both brought in to audition for SNL. Bowen gets Mm -hmm. SNL and and you don't get, get SNL. So yeah. I thought about that when I watched, um, did you watch that movie, Don't Think Twice, about, with Keegan-Michael Key? I,
1: I did watch Don't Think Twice.
0: So yeah. for people who haven't seen it, it's about a sketch group where, you know, one of the members of the improv, improv group gets on what well, i think they call it like weekly weekly live or something like that or you know weekend new, live weekend live yeah they won't they, they mm-hmm. instead of saturday night live and it and it really messes with their d- dynamic and it messes with their yeah. friendships and it ended up sending me down this rabbit hole of like reading about all these comedic partnerships that were kind of messed up by SNL like all, uh, all these like the, the the Lonely Island. There's like another guy in the Lonely Island that I don't know about, or like with Kyle Mooney. There's like another dude that I that I'm not that I'm not familiar with, and I've seen it sort of like, mm-hmm. I've seen the way that that specific thing can wreak havoc on a partnership and on someone else's sort of like career and and work, and it didn't for you and Bowen, and it didn't for you, and. At least on this on this end of things, and I've, I've I found that really really interesting on a bunch of levels. But I'll I'll stop talking here and just kind of hand it over to you. Like, what what do you make of that?
1: You know, I think that. Well, what I'll say is, of course, I had my feelings about it. <laughs> yeah, you know right, what I mean? Right, like, right, I, right, right, right. Yeah. And I, I I'm I'm happy that like um, it all worked out the way that it worked out. Yeah. And I'll say that. From both sides. Like, I am so proud of him and so thrilled for him and so unsurprised because I have always known he was such a star. But in terms of my own career, like I think at the time, I did have to go through a mourning process because it wasn't just that I didn't get it. I got pretty close. Like I they I I went in more than once. I did the whole thing. Like I was like put on what they call hold for it. Like for a large period of time. Like there was a moment after one of my screen tests where I got back to my um, I got back to my uh, my apartment. I looked myself in the mirror and I was like, this is gonna happen. I was like, I'm actually gonna get my dream you know? And now after not getting it and moving on, I realized that wasn't my dream all along. You know what I mean? Like my dream was to do what I'm doing. Yeah. And what I get to say is that I got that opportunity. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and what I get to say is that I have so many, I'm pretty much friends with the entire cast now. And I just know that like Everything really does work out for a reason. And that sounds like cliche to say, but for me, it's true. I don't think that I would have thrived there. I I worry about what it would have done to my mental health, to be honest with you. And I say that with all love and respect for everyone that's there and all support for everyone that's there. But I don't think it's for everyone. And and it's literally not for everyone in a good way. Um, I wouldn't, I don't have any regrets I I think, like, there was, of course, that period of time where after you do it and you don't get it, you beat yourself up. You know what I mean? I was very cruel to myself. I definitely went through a depression. I, I would say I'm really, you know, not to say too much, but, like, of course it affects a friendship. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, of course it does. Yeah. And um we were young. You know, we were 27. Wow. um. And that's the thing is it's like, I think that would have been a totally different thing to go through now at 33. I, But I don't have any regrets. And what a cool, unique experience for both of us. And we are still us. You know what I mean? Like, And on these journeys that strengthen each other.
0: What, what I might add to that is that if this was 1983, that would have been one of two ways to get noticed. You get on SNL, you do stand up on Johnny Carson. Like, I don't know. Like, right. that, th- these are the only ways. The The point I was trying to make, and I do really appreciate what you're saying, the point I was trying to make was the fact that this happened when it did means that given what, everything you just told me about how there is an audience there that we didn't know about, sorry, that we knew about, but that wasn't being catered to by um, film and TV companies that, that weren't being, yeah, catered, you know. yeah. Th- this happening in twenty twenty three is 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 what it's it, it, it happens and affects everybody personally and emotionally but in terms of the 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 art that you can bring people, yeah. what a time for it to happen because hey i I have my audience i don't I don't kind of need these big i i don't need the seal of approval from that I might have needed in nineteen eighty three I can find my own audience now.
1: And you have, you, know what another thing is? Like, I'm a I'm a kid from Long Island.
0: Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The
1: question that you get asked by everyone yeah. when you're like a funny kid or a kid pursuing comedy or whatever is, when are you going to get on Saturday Night Live? Yeah. When are you going to get on Saturday Night Live? Yeah. So when you get that close, mm-hmm. there's like a psychological thing that happens where you're like, holy shit. Mm. Like, this might really be a question I could answer. And then when you don't, it's like, it's just, of course it's like gonna play with your head. And especially when you know, because Bowen was not my first very close friend that got that job. I had other extremely close friends. Like, I had already Myers. been through the thing. <laughs> so yeah, <to> exactly. <laughs> my buddy, Mike Myers. I had already been through the thing of, like, needing to adjust my life and my professional life because my best friend had gotten a job there. My yep. other best friend's name is Sudi Green, who when we were, I believe... 24, she got put on the writing staff there, and we had a pilot together that we were going to take out. And so I had already been through this. And I remember thinking at that time, I don't think I could go through this again. Thank God I probably won't. Mm. Cut two, five years later, I go through it in this way that's like to such a crazier magnitude. And, you know, but, but I guess what I'm saying is, I'm, used to that scarcity mentality i think it's what kind of drives me you know what i mean like i thought when i was coming up in comedy in my 20s that like snl was the peak and the pinnacle and if you didn't get that like and you had worked so hard for it like then like it was almost like there was like this period where i was like well maybe nothing else is like for me but then i moved to los angeles i got my first writing job i I wrote for the other two Um, which was like the coolest comedy on television at the time. And then I continued to work. And I just like realized as I moved forward, like, oh, this is such a tiny little, Mm. little thing in the scope of the entertainment industry and in the scope of what I'm capable of. Because to be honest with you, another thing just to call back to what I was saying earlier was, At the time I did my second screen test for Saturday Night Live, they had asked for all new original characters and impressions. And my brain was no longer working that way. I had discovered my comedic Uh, voice in the podcast. Uh, Suddenly I was like, I "I think that I'm over this. And I think because Bowen had never really done that because he didn't come up in sketch, And, you know, he didn't really do that. Like, he had more honed his own individual voice online, to Mm -hmm. be honest with you. And he did a lot more stand-up than me. He sort of then crossed into, like, the challenging, fun thing is creating characters and doing all that and doing sketches. And I was sort of moving into embracing my own voice and my individuality, which I then directly funneled into this Christmas show, which became a trademark of mine. And, like, not for nothing, but a very successful thing for me.
0: What I'm hearing there is that this opportunity came where you had to pretend to be someone else for the job interview at a time when you had finally taken some great comfort in yourself. Like you had taken. Exactly. Some, yeah, that's a beautiful thing, man. That's a beautiful thing.
1: I think it worked out for the best. I really do.
0: Um, I really, really love talking to you. Um, and I loved, I loved, Likewise. The, I love the record. Um, before we go, one question. Um, mm-hmm. We're fans of the podcast here. If you were to do, and an I don't think so, honey. Which, for people who don't know, is like a sixty-second rant about something that's kind of driving you crazy. If you yep. were, if you were to do a Christmas-themed one, essentially, what I'm asking you is, which of these things do you like the least? Would you do okay. it about eggnog, mm-hmm. tinsel, or oh. charitable donations instead of Christmas gifts?
1: See, the thing about charitable donations <laughs> instead of Christmas gifts is, at least they go to charity. Yeah. So if I don't like them, a who my And yeah. be like, like, like just because you're not getting the money doesn't mean they're not going to a great cause. So it's certainly not that I would marry that one. <laughs> I, I, I would tinsel because I actually think that tinsel is sort of the queer, the queer way to decorate a tree. Like, of course, the straight way is to do lights. But tinsel, you know, she shines in the night. She's silver, which is the queerest color. And one of my favorite things about baby me is I was asked at five years old what my favorite color was. And I said silver, which I think points to queer identity. They should have just, you know, <laughs> you know sent me to the Mariah Carey concert right there. And I'm I'm actually going to I'm going to kill eggnog because what? Like I, there's a tens of thousands of things I'd rather drink than that. So I don't think so, honey. Eggnog, to answer your question in a roundabout way. I love turning it into f- Mary Kill, f- charitable don—no, f- tinsel. Mar- no, Mary charitable donations. F- tinsel, tinsel, and kill eggnog. Kill eggnog. <laughs> Matt, love
0: it to talk to you, man. Thanks so much for making the time.
1: This was a blast. Thank you, Tom.
0: I'll say this: what a way to end a conversation. On, on this show. Thank you so much to Matt Rogers. What a joy, I mean, what, a, what a, I mean, hilarious dude. Also so thoughtful and so honest about something that I think a lot about, like something we don't talk a lot about. What happens when one person gets this massive success and and, and, and you don't? Thanks to Matt for that, I really appreciate it. The other conversation we have up today is Talia Schlanger's chat with Romeo Candido, the Canadian playwright, who um, did a play which is uh, uh, on stage right now, a musical at the National Arts Center. Based on one of the very first internet viral videos. Go check that out. We'll see you soon later on.
1: For more CBC
0: podcasts, go to cBC.ca/podcasts.